DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to talk BYU football right now with the former receiver, Dylan Colley. Dylan, good morning. Morning. How we doing? Good. I'd like to throw you a curveball right out of the gate, and I don't know if you've watched the game or seen him play, but uh, I have watched several Nevada, at least parts of several Nevada football games, if not all of them, and there's a wide receiver named Romeo Dubs who is making one big play after another. And I wonder, uh, him specifically, or receivers in generally, when you see a guy who's awesome with the deep ball, is he really a good receiver, or is he athletically better than everybody? And you got to be careful projecting him to the next level because of that. Uh, there's, there's multiple opinions on that, right? And I think you see where the threat of the downfield speed, right, uh, as coaches will always recruiting can't teach speed, can't teach size, right? And so when someone has uh, the ability to kind of stretch the field over the top, uh, you kind of have that foundation of, you know, a little bit of a, right, like that, that's the guy that people want to go after, right? He, go, he passes that type of eye test. Now, I think in order to truly be a complete receiver, we need to be able to see what you can do underneath. And I think that's what, you know, you look at a guy like uh, Julio Jones, you look at a guy like Mike Thomas, you look at a guy like Tyreek Hill, right, where uh, these guys have were founded on the deep ball and being able to stretch the field but are still just as big of a threat coming across the middle and in, in the underneath routes where they can make even big plays that way. So I think that's the true definition of a receiver. Um, but – you know, when a guy can take it off the top, uh, that does nothing but benefit a team. So we had yesterday, we had Dennis Dodd on. He's national college football writer for CBS Sports. And he said that he thought Romney and Mill could play with anybody in the country. First of all, how cool is it that we're thinking about that from a BYU perspective? And how much do you agree with that? I, I 100% agree with that. I think Daxon got are, uh, and, and we've talked about this all season, right? I think they both share traits that together make them, I mean, I think statistically today, right? The best duo in the country. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, right, you look at the physicality, the strength, the sheer ability to go up and get it that Gunner has, um, and, and his physicality, right, is kind of un. And then you look at the one-on-one capability of Dax Mill. And I've said this before, I don't think that there is another receiver um, that I've been around who, in press coverage, man-to-man, is as dynamic as, as Dax is. He's un- like unbelievable off the line. His routes are uh, really just kind of absurd. And I think you know a lot of people may give it credit to, well, he's a walk-on, and so it's just surprising to everybody, but uh, ultimately, the dude's a phenomenal receiver, and him and Gunner uh, together, uh, I completely agree. How many walk-ons could really do this and they don't get their chance? The scholarship guys always get the opportunity over them. Are, are there more guys out there who could do it? Uh, I, I mean, at the level that he's done it, I don't think so. I mean, you do have, right, I, like similar situation to you got look at a guy like Cooper Cup, right, who 
could have walked on to an FBS school, but decided to go to a D1AA FCS school um, and is performing in the NFL as if he was one of the best Division One FBS receivers in the country, right? And so when you look at it that way, it's kind of hard to, to detail. What Dax did, okay, to just walk on after having offers at a D1AA is, one, an extremely risky move. Um, where you have to have the confidence that you are going to play. You have to trust the coaches. And I, I think that does a lot to not only Dax's trust, but to what Fessy said, to what A-Rod said, and to what Kalani said. Um, and that was, hey, if you perform, right, we're going to put you on scholarship. I can honestly tell you I have never heard of another time where a walk-on has come on, been promised a scholarship for the following year, and that's actually come through. A lot of people and a lot of coaches – will normally kind of hope and pray that that slides by the wayside and gets forgotten about. And even as, you know, that, that topic is brought up and people talk and, and, you know, a player comes to the coach's office, there's generally always an excuse. And so um, Jax, the coaching staff, the program, I mean, really came together to, to make that happen and, and make it a possibility. I don't think that happens with any other, you know, real walk-ons across the country. But you look at Cooper Cup. You look at Deontay Harris for the New Orleans Saints, someone that could have walked on to a, D, uh, a Division One FBS but performed at the Division Two level at Assumption College and is now probably looking at being a back-to-back Pro Bowl receiver as an uh, undrafted free agent right, for the New Orleans Saints. So these cases do happen, but it is very, very rare. So when you lose, the coaches take a lot of grief, and when you win, the coaches get a lot of praise. And you've already mentioned Fessy Sataki, the receivers coach. You've played for a number of them. Your family has been pretty much a family of receivers and coaching and camps and all that stuff. What makes a good receivers coach? Yeah, I think, the, the one, the understanding of the offense as a whole, and that's every single position, and that's where Fess does such a phenomenal job and why he's such a great hire is simply because of his understanding and ability as an offensive coordinator, right? He's not thinking on one level like a lot of receivers coaches do. A lot of receivers coaches are thinking just about the position, um, whereas Fessy's in a position where he's thinking about the offensive line. He's thinking about the quarterback's reads. He's thinking about the blocking of the running back, right? So he has this overarching thing. I think that is one of the most important facets to a receivers coach and what makes a receiver's coach are really, really good. And then the second is just understanding technique and how to truly teach a receiver the game uh, and, and, and the actual position and the mechanics of it. And, you know, he does, he does a very, very good job of that. I think the one thing that Fess carries over a lot of receiver's coaches is, is his ability to understand, you know, the, the big picture. Um, and that's another site that's just kind of rare. So what has clicked in for Gunnar Romney and Dax Milne this year that they have taken off like this? Uh, I mean, pretty simply put, you have an extremely good relationship with your quarterback being the first and foremost, right? Your biggest priorities when you come into college football is, one, you have a relationship with your quarterback, and two, you have a relationship with the equipment guys. Right, because if you're not nice to the quarterback, you're not going to get any balls, and if you're not nice to the equipment guys, you're not going to get any gear. Uh, so, so those are the two two most important relationships that you need to keep. And then the second is just having an offense that really surrounds uh, everybody's strengths. Um, and being in that system for 
what is now three years and a lot, right? A lot of football in three years. The last time that we saw a very successful receiving core, right? Where everybody across the boards making plays and, and things like you see today was, you know, obviously probably 2009, 2010, when you saw the same offense over a good amount of years, right? You had comfort in the personnel. You trusted everyone around you. At that point, the game becomes so slow that you can just take advantage of any defense that comes by. And that's what these guys are doing right now is just absolutely taking advantage of these defenses because they know this offense and understand the schemes like the back of their hand. So during that time that you referenced 10, 11, 12 years ago, they had a really good tight end in Pitta, and they had your brother, and some really some big-time players. I wanted to talk to you about Isaac Rex. How big-time is he individually as opposed from being able to benefit from this great combination of Romney and Mill? Uh, 100%. I mean, it's not just his size. It's his athletic ability, right? And, and Isaac is someone that, uh, you know, I think I, I don't know if you guys – Heard the story. He he grew up in Eldorado Hills uh, with us in Sacramento before they moved down to San Clemente um, and spent a lot of time with our family. I babysat both Isaac and Preston uh, as a young middle school and high school kid. And so, um, you know, I've been around him for a very, very long time and love that family with, uh, you know, with a lot. Um, Isaac is an extremely dynamic tight end, very similar to Dennis, because he has the receiving capability, right? He can run a route. He can block. He's physical. Um, and then you look at what receivers doing on the outside. It's very hard to, you know, say, hey, we're going to work on maintaining the middle and we're going to maintain the outside. <laughs> There's just not a lot of defenses, and the defenses that BYU has gone again this year are, you know, they're definitely not capable of playing both in and out. So, uh, not only is Isaac an absolute freak, but, you know, schematically, the, the system's really made for him. Uh, I think everybody who's a BYU fan watched the Taysom Hill game Sunday, and I am curious yeah. your take uh, for a guy who had accuracy issues at BYU, only five incomplete passes, at least one, maybe two of them were drops off the top of my head. Yep. And the game plan also seemed to be really tailored to his skill set. And I'm wondering how much longer they can do that. How much tape do defenses have to have on a quarterback before they say, we're taking away what you do best. Let's see if you can do this over here. I mean, I, I think you do that. I think, I think defenses are going to try, right, and do that within a week. I think that defenses are good enough to do that in the NFL. At least they should be. That's why they get paid the big bucks. But I also think that Sean Payton and that New Orleans staff is uh, even better, right, in a majority of the, of the defenses in the NFL. That's why they're a top-tier team every single year. And so although the game plan, although the scheme is very different, and there are flaws that Taysom does have, everyone knows that, he knows that, right, but he's continuing to work, and the expectation isn't for him to go and be a Drew Brees. The expectation is for him to be Taysom Hill for right now, and then we'll continue to work on right those ins and outs of being a full-time starting quarterback. Right now, the weapons that New Orleans has in their arsenal, I think it's very, very difficult just to say, hey, if, you, if we stop Taysom Hill on his feet, 
right, we can close everything else down. When you have Michael Thomas, right, Emmanuel Sanders, Alvin Kamara, you know, Traquan Smith, you have all of these weapons that, hey, we can do, you know, screen after screen. We can do, uh, you know, power run game after power run game. There's too much to their offense that truly just says, hey, we need to limit Taysom Hill. I don't think that's on anyone's first priority. And so they'll continue to play within that system, you know, uh, until someone can actually stop it in terms of getting wins because it's a temporary thing. And then they'll think long-term after this. How crazy is it to think that Taysom Hill did not get drafted? (laughs) I mean, uh, the guy... Like outside, the, the crazy part is, and we talked about it all week, the media has talked about it all week, is the fact that he had four season-ending injuries. Like what happened to his body is probably the, is crazier than him not being drafted. His injuries were not, you know, his injuries would end, would have ended a lot of careers. And I'm, I bet if you went and looked and looked at all four of those season-ending injuries, how many key players have just never performed since? I mean, the numbers are probably astronomical. So for the, his ability and his truly like athletic freakness, there's no one, nobody I know more athletic than Taysom Hill. Uh, for him to be able to come back and then perform at the level that he does every week in the NFL is absolutely absurd. How blown away were you when he started to run and there were three guys that he had to beat to the pylon and he outran them all, turned the corner and beat them all to the pylon for that last TD? I, I mean, blown away is a tough one just because I've seen it and, and you expect that from Taysom, right? And so it's just kind of like, well, there's Taysom being Taysom. If Taysom hurdles somebody, there's Taysom being Taysom, you know? Now, if we were to say, hey, let's see Taysom, you know, I'd be the, the blown away part is, hey, let's see Taysom hit, right, the three different levels of the pass game consistently, right, week in and week out. That's where you start to see. That's where as soon as he can start doing that on a consistent level, that's when you'll start to see people blown away, and then you really don't have a game plan for him, and I genuinely believe that he's capable of doing that. So he brings, as an ex-Cougar, the Cougar program, football program, a lot of run. There's a bunch of guys who have been in the NFL, Warner, Taki Taki with the pick six on Saturday. And, you know, with them being undefeated, getting so much love nationally, uh, we've seen a bunch of guys, LDS kids, not go to BYU. You think we start mm-hmm. seeing that tide turn? Is it going to be a problem? Not, I don't know if problem is a word, but an issue going forward. And just we got to live with it. Uh, I mean, yes, I, I do think we're going to continue to see, right. A drop off in the amount of, you know, uh, I think we're going to see LDS kids disperse, which in my opinion is phenomenal. Right. I think that that's so much better for the culture of the church to be able to have, right. Instead of where it just may have been parents saying, nope, you're just going to BYU because that's the right decision, right? Now, the kind of we're trusting in the church is in a position where it's like, hey, (laughs) we've set things up and the gospel has been set up in a way to where you can go and feel comfortable being yourself in any environment, right? So I think that's a huge part of it. 
on the opposite end for recruiting, with all of this hype, it is very hard to see BYU in the top 10. It's very hard to see the success that all of these guys are having in the NFL. It's kind of difficult to even be a non-member and say, oof, I don't know if I want to go to BYU, right? Like, (laughs) there is way too much upside right now, and I think it will continue. And I think the recruiting efforts are in a very good place at BYU to where, you know, yes, the loss of top LDS players could be detrimental. In turn, I think we're opening ourselves up for, you know, non-LDS guys who are capable of playing at the highest level, right, will start migrating and coming to BYU. Dylan Colley joining us here. Uh, I'm curious, uh, we got to get into the scheduling thing, I guess, at some point. Um, I I first heard that uh, Kyle Winningham on Saturday night say we're going to find out who we play hopefully tomorrow, which, of course, didn't pan out. But that made me think that, well, he knew ASU and Washington State were in trouble and he thought they'd be playing Washington. So an old Mm -hmm. BYU-Washington thing came up. I didn't really take it seriously. Then I checked Twitter and found out, wow, BYU lightning rod. It still works. There's lightning. There's thunder. Um, But set all that aside, is BYU fundamentally differently prepared to play Washington this year than a year ago? Granted, Washington's got different players and a different coach, and you know it's a year later yeah. for them too. But BYU got dominated at home by Washington. How much confidence do you have in them going to Washington if that were to happen, which I've never really thought was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, obviously it would be a very, very tough game. It would be a very, very tough situation, especially on one week's notice, right? But uh, I think the level that this team is playing at, the talent that they have, uh, it would be an extremely, extremely good game, and it would be a tough test. Do I think that they, you know, BYU extremely capable of, of winning that football game, and it would be a very good football game? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I feel very, very confident, right, that that wouldn't be a game that we truly would need to be tucking our tails for. But with some open dates and some games to be played, what can a team do to make sure it doesn't lose its edge? And that's that's a very, very tough question. That's, that is uh, something that you see, right? That's, that's the true test of a coaching staff. That's the true test of a program. It's how well can you stay fine-tuned with only playing two games in, you know, two, three months. Um that's a very difficult ask. It's not something that you have to do very often, right, to stay in-season mode with that type of gap. But, you know, there's just, I think, it, it really rides a lot on, on how the staff plans for it and how the players kind of execute that plan in terms of how much time are you spending studying film, how much time are you giving yourself is kind of like, okay, let me relax for a little bit, right, but not getting to that point where, you've completely lost focus on the season and, you know, it takes you two weeks to kind of ramp back up. Um, and so I, I don't know. I don't know what the best avenue would be there, uh, but I do believe that it would take a, a ton of work to stay to stay that sharp. Dylan, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Good to talk to you, and we'll talk to you again in another week. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Kyle Whittingham's weekly media session is coming up next on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.
Kyle Whittingham, a little on the early side, his 8.30 media session, a minute and a half early. Here's Kyle. Hi, and we'll just continue to uh, get ready and, and uh, go through the season. So that's where we're at. So questions. We will start off with Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune, followed by Trevor Allen of kslsports.com. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. Um, with Cam out, just, you know, how beneficial is it to have a, you know, a capable backup like Jake, a guy who's been through some wars and, you know, who's played a lot of games at a high level? Well, that's crucial. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have that luxury to have two quarterbacks that feel really good about. We actually have three, Drew Les. They don't want to discount Drew and what he brings to the program because he's a quality player as well. And, uh, you know, didn't take long for us to get to the number two guy and, and that's where we're at, and we have full confidence in Jake moving forward, and it'll be uh, a big benefit to him taking all the reps with the ones this week and uh, should be uh, more comfortable and settled in this this next game. Just to follow that up off topic, you're in a situation now where you're scheduled to play Arizona State, but the opponent may change later in the week. Um, if the opponent does change to Washington, have you been given any indication where that game might be played? Understand that it'll be on the road regardless of who we play. It'll either be at uh, ASU or at UW. And so it looks like uh, the possibility of a home game doesn't exist for this week. And uh, it'll be uh, – and, and it'll be there, uh, the Washington game would be on Saturday, whereas the ASU game would be on Sunday. To the, you know, That's my understanding. Next, we'll go to Trevor Allen, kslsports.com. Coach, now now that you look at, at uh, Jake, Jake Bentley, what is, you know, after now watching the film, uh, is it, I mean, you obviously have a, a pretty deep room at quarterback now. Do you do you feel, uh, you, you know, good about having Jake as your starter now? We sure do. And he's got 30-plus uh, SEC starts under his belt and performed very well in the SEC. So it's not like it's an unknown commodity. And uh, we're going to build the offense around Jake now and, and his skill set. And away we go. So, yeah, we, we feel very fortunate that uh, he's with us and we expect him to uh, get the job done for us. Next, we'll go to Ryan Costecto from SI.com, followed by Josh Furlong. Hey, Coach, how are you doing this morning? Good, thank you. So, obviously, you know, now that you've had time to go back and watch film, can you break down what you saw from the defense? I mean, Tony, you had four field goals to USC, you had a couple turnovers. Did you like what you saw, you know, or in where can you really improve? It was a great start defensively, and uh, I thought they handled the adversity and the, the situations they were put in very well, particularly with uh, five or six freshmen playing for us, which uh, we feel good about those guys. We're not, we're not making excuses or complaining, but those guys that had not played college football before, we thought they handled it very well. It wasn't perfect. Made some mistakes, missed some tackles, blew a couple assignments, but uh, overall, it was uh, a pretty darn good showing. There were some real positives there. Uh, held them to less than 100 yards rushing, which is always our starting point on defense, is to, is to turn a team one-dimensional. Uh, in the throw game, we, we gave up a little bit, but not, not uh, a ton. I think they had 350-something total yards and uh, came away with a couple takeaways, a touchdown. Uh, one of those takeaways was a scoop and score touchdown. Uh, played pretty good in sudden change situations. And like you mentioned, we held them to, to uh, four field goals and, and all field goals in the second half. There was no 
no touchdown scored by the opponent in the second half. So there's, it's a lot to build on and a, and a good start for our defense. Uh, we got to get a lot better. I mean, there's uh, plenty of things to work on and improve upon, but it was encouraging. I guess that's the bottom line. It was very encouraging from what we saw. And uh, as long as we continue to get better throughout the course of the season, which I guess is like three or four more games is all of it, but uh, that'll, be, that'll be key. Next up, Josh Furlong, followed by Josh Newman. Kyle, before the season started, you said that the offense was uh, obviously going to be a little bit more uh, ahead than the defense, but, but the offense struggled, and you said that you, you didn't get the push that you were hoping for on the offensive line. Is that, is that where you see, now that you've looked at the tape, the breakdown came, or were there other factors, and, and what were those factors that kind of led to the offense kind of stalling? Well, there was other factors as well, but that was the, the main problem, is we didn't control the line of scrimmage like we expected to. Credit SC, they did a nice job with their defensive line and the front seven in general. And uh, we were expecting much more control of the line of scrimmage and, and a better push. And we didn't get it. And that was really the, the most uh, pressing issue and the thing that was the biggest, most problematic for us in that game was, was exactly that. Uh, it would turn the ball over five times. That's the, the biggest statistic in the game you play a team like SC, you can't turn the ball over five times and, and have a chance to win. It just doesn't happen. So that that was number one uh, as far as what occurred execution-wise. But as far as what occurred just in the you know, down after down, it was our inability to control the line of scrimmage, which really surprised me. I thought we were going to control the line of scrimmage. Josh Newman followed by Trevor Allen. Kyle, as you move through this week, how, how do you – how do you kind of operate knowing that, okay, you're scheduled to play ASU, but the opponent may change on a dime at some point this week. How, how do you kind of go through that? Well, all the focus right now is on ASU and until we're told differently, that's, that's where we're going to put the majority of our attention. I say the majority because you've still got to pay attention to the other possibility, but uh, that's where our primary focus is. And we hope to find out sooner rather than later. And uh, it would be ideal if we could find out today, uh, you know, as the, as the week moves on, it becomes more of a difficult situation without having some clarity. But uh, we have no control over that, as far as I'm told. And so we're just waiting for a definitive answer. And uh, until that point, like I said, the, uh, the main focal point is uh, Arizona State. And just a quick we'll follow. go to Trevor Allen. Kyle, uh, as, as far as the offense went, I know I know that there was a lot of things that that could be uh, worked on. What what really stood out to you? I I know that you mentioned uh, on you know after the game on Saturday that a lot of it was the O line play and how and how they uh, performed. Well, that's what stood out, and that's what continued to stand out after we watched the tape. Is is uh, just didn't play as well up front as we know. First of all, we're capable of. We got some good players up front. I've, I have not changed my stance on that or my opinion. We just got to play better, and they are capable of playing better. And, I would expect they will play better. Uh, there were also some, a lot of encouraging things. Ty Jordan, uh, our little freshman running back, showed a lot of, of uh, big play potential, and, and uh, he's an explosive, dynamic player. Um, the tight ends didn't really have a chance to make much of an impact, but they, they did some good things as well. Brian Thompson made a nice play at the field. And so we, we just were better than that offensively. What, what we saw on Saturday night was not us. Ten points and five turnovers was uh, – abysmal and that's something that we got to get changed and we have the players to change that so we got to we got to get that rectified and and have a much better more productive performance uh, 
know, coming up this week. Josh Furlong. Now, speaking of Ty Jordan in that running back room, based off this last game, were you able to kind of see a little bit of, of uh, a better look at maybe the depth of, of who you want to be able to put in that, that maybe starting role, or are you still kind of plan on using that by committee at this point? Talking specifically about the running backs then? Yes, yes, sorry. I would say that each of them brings something different to the table. We'll continue to try to maximize what each of them do. Mackay Bernard made a couple nice plays for us. Uh, talked about Ty Jordan already. Jordan Romo had a few nice runs, as did Devin Brumfield. So they all they all contributed. Um, and so we continue, we will continue to uh, use all four of them and until somebody separates themselves if they do. And, and if they do separate themselves, they'll start to get the majority of the carries and touches. But uh, until then, we're going to continue to use all four. Now, one thing that was not real solid uh, out of the running back group is pass protection. It was a little soft in pass protection on blitz pickup, and we got to improve there. That's part of being a complete back is being able to protect, and, and so we've got uh, a little bit of work to do there for this week. All right. Thank you very much, Kyle. All right. There's Kyle Whittingham, and the big headline right there is the schedule. They're prepping for Arizona State, which would be on Sunday but he knows he might get switched to Washington on Saturday. And he wants to know today, but he says it's out of his control. So that's pretty frustrating. <laughs> Who are you playing? Who are you watching film for? You know, in the days of analysts, I assume that there is preparation done behind the scenes, but it doesn't really matter what the analysts know or what the coaches know. It's how much they can transfer to the players and get them to execute. So... That's already an issue. After the opener against uh, USC, the offensive problems were laid bare for everybody to see, and it starts with the offensive line. I thought Clay Helton had a really telling comment in the postgame when he talked about the ability to pressure the quarterback and get him off the spot. Great football line. Get him off the spot. But had the quarterbacks thrown on the move, and uh, one of the interceptions interceptions that Bentley threw was a Hail Mary at the end of the game. But one of the interceptions he threw is flushed out of his pocket to the right, and then he tried to throw deep down the left side of the field, making that with the diagonal the longest possible throw. And not surprisingly, the ball was underthrown and it was intercepted. So decision-making right there. Uh, looks like a senior who lost the job who was pressing to make a big play, so he forced a throw he shouldn't have made. Hopefully some of that pressure is off now because he is the guy for the rest of the season, as you heard Kyle say there as well the season such as it is. So either ASU on Sunday or Washington on Saturday. And if you're into the exposure thing and the team being seen and talked about and recruits seeing it, I mean, I think the hardcore will find it wherever it is. But that the UCLA-Cal game, uh, they they put out the ratings for all the games, and it was seen by a lot fewer people, as you might expect with a Sunday 10 a.m., 9 a.m. in California, uh, 10 a.m. here, kickoff. So, where does the O-line go from here? Give the quarterback protection and, uh, and let him throw and let him make it happen. And, of course, for BYU fans, I'm already, getting, uh, <laughs> I'm already getting people tweeting at me, see, that was a smart decision by BYU. Yeah, PK and I talked about this yesterday. Bleed blue blood. Looks like BYU was right at SI Mandel. Come back to the fold. <laughs> Yaki shaking his head in there. Immediate scorekeeping. <laughs> Immediate scorekeeping by BYU fans. See? 
Of course, there's also the chance BYU could have played the game, that the Utes will end up playing Arizona State. And BYU can't hurt to strengthen the resume. Yes, it's a risk. Yes, you could lose and lose everything. We'll have a a little more clarity tonight at 5 o'clock, and I wouldn't be surprised if BYU announces something a day or two after that. Does that mean they're playing Cincinnati on the 5th? Does that mean they're scheduling a good team for the 19th that isn't going to be in a conference championship game? Is there an opening out there on the 12th? There are only two Big 12 games that day, and I don't know how much the middle of the Big 12 really helps you. But at the top of the Big 12, Iowa State and Oklahoma are not playing. Are they interested in playing? I assume Tom's made all those calls, and he's got plans A, B, and C laid out there and ready to go. Um, you know, At least he has some say. As Kyle pointed out, he's got no say. You know, Just wait to get the phone call from the conference. You're playing Washington on Saturday, or you're playing ASU on Sunday. And uh, for BYU, wait and see what happens on the 5th. Wait and see what happens on the 19th. It doesn't look like San Diego State is going to play on the 19th. You know, can they move that game back a week, and can BYU get a game on the 12th? San Diego State has perpetually been short on money. Everybody is now, but San Diego State has been perpetually. So it seems like uh, that, that could be accomplished. Move that game back from the 12th to the 19th. If that's where you can get a quality opponent, then make it happen. You know, for BYU, BYU and Utah, the, you know, the pandemic hits at really different times. It's a problem for different reasons. For BYU, set up for a big season, a lot of guys in their third year. Some of those guys in their third year may be off to the NFL, so it's not like you got next year. I mean, you've got next year, but you don't have it with this cast of characters that you've invested in for three years. So have the biggest year you can, but it's um, – and, and maybe, they'll, maybe they'll be able to add a big-time marquee game or two. You know, Kalani in his Saturday post-game press conference seemed to be saying, we are going to play a big-time game. We're ready to go. Kyle seemed to be indicating in his post-game, I don't know if we're playing ASU or Washington. Hopefully we find out tomorrow. Now, that was Sunday, and now we sit here on Tuesday morning, and he still doesn't know. Personally, I don't think he's going to know till Thursday. I know he wants to hear today, and hopefully he hears today, but that, that would surprise me. The, the disappointment for the Utes is you've had a good run over three years. You know, you invested that first year and it paid off in the next two. Before that, you had it previously, you had a good three year run. Now you're bringing in, and clearly they're playing a lot of freshmen and sophomores. You just heard Kyle say he's not planning on replacing those freshmen with juniors. You know, they like the half dozen freshmen they started, and they got to play better. So one or two of them may come out of the starting lineup. Anything can happen there, and that could be because somebody got healthy or it could be for production issues and, you know, the quality of their play. But it sounds like he's committed to the most, the majority, if not all, of those freshmen going forward. And so you're starting to build up that three-year, you know, ramp up for another three-year run here. Now, the frustrating thing for the Utes is this was a rebuilding year, so they're not losing their big year. I don't think they were going to have a big year if they had played their normal schedule. There's too much turnover, but they could have had a decent year and gotten 12, 13 games for these guys worth of experience. Now you're going to get, depending on how this works out, four or five games of experience for these guys to get them ready for next year, which isn't ideal. But whatever you get is better than what you had. And you know, for the BYU fans who are frustrated, who wanted to play Washington, I get why the conference takes care of its own. 
you know, for if, if BYU played Washington, which is uh, we, we had Ian Furness on, he's like, nobody, you know, all due respect to you, nobody wants to see Utah Washington. People really want to see BYU Washington. I get that, you know, but the league needs to take care of their own teams and help their teams get better. Not that necessarily the youths of the team that's going to win the division, win the conference, go to the Rose Bowl, go to the playoff. Maybe they are. But even if they're not, you need them to be good. So if a USC or an Oregon or whoever else is good, Washington or ASU, beats them, it looks like a quality win. You know, the teams at the top need the next group of teams to be good. You know, Alabama has benefited because LSU, Georgia, and Florida have been good. And the Pac-12 is not turning into the SEC anytime soon, or possibly ever. But the, the concept is still there. Ohio State needs Penn State and Michigan to be good. And Wisconsin. And throw in a Michigan State or this year a Northwestern. And the Pac-12 needs that too. So they got to play these conference games and allow these young teams to build themselves up. All right, we got to take a break. DJ and PK coming up. Scotty G is going to join us about 9.30. Football transitioning to basketball at Utah State and a trip to South Dakota, of all places, for a preseason holiday tournament, said no one ever. And that was had your first opponent changed on you. Yeah, the, the opponents changed. The location has changed. Uh, it's a COVID hotspot. Scotty G at 9.30. And, and the football game Thursday, is that happening? We'll talk with him about that as well. Um, and the same thing there for the Aggies as the Utes. You know, they're not going anywhere. They're 0-4. But you still got young guys. you got to play young guys. you got to find out who can play and who can get better and who can't and has to be recruited over the top. Not every one of those guys is a disaster. And not every one of those guys is a star either. And you got to sort that out. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone, reminding you to join the big show Friday from 2 to 7 at the Warehouse, 1825 South, 300 West in Salt Lake City. Price is so low, it'll blow your mind. Boom! Stay with us. Let's go! The Big Show. It's a big deal! With Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. I don't buy the narrative that BYU's ducking anybody. I think the truth is much more nuanced than that, and there's more irons in the fire. And if you lock yourself into Washington only to be left at the altar, because they're already preparing for Utah, it's more complex than, oh, BYU's ducking Washington. And and you understand that I understand that. I don't like the last second the Pac-12 can swoop in and switch opponents out. What a stupid rule. But I would abide that if I were BYU just to have an opportunity to play a quality opponent. I think it's worth BYU taking a chance, saying, hey man, we don't care. If you want to run from us, run from us, but we're here. Let's play. The Big Show. Weekdays from 2 to 7 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions, backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. We just had Kyle Whittingham. He had his media availability for the week at 8.30. Uh, as you expected, Cam Rising is out for the year. I mean, the year isn't that long, so I think we saw the shoulder injury and heard Kyle's tone afterwards. You're not surprised when you hear it, but Kyle makes it official. Cam Rising is out. Jake Bentley is the starter the rest of the season, the next three to four games, whatever it turns out to be. Also... Utah will play either Washington on Saturday or ASU on Sunday. Kyle doesn't know. He's hoping to be notified today. And they're preparing for ASU. I assume that in the background somebody is preparing for Washington, but you can't put two teams into the players' minds at the same time. So they're preparing the team for ASU right now and hoping to hear for sure. Now, while everyone waits to hear what happens in Tempe, Clay Helton has met with the media in Los Angeles 
And he says they were informed last night that a single USC player tested positive for COVID-19 on Monday. The player tested, uh, the player traveled, tested negative up to and on game day, but tested positive on Monday and he is symptomatic. So now there'll be contact tracing for USC players. And of course, 3-0 USC is scheduled to play 2-0 Colorado this weekend. All of which leads to the question, where is BYU going to be tonight at 5 o'clock when the selection committee is released and when Tom Holman sees where they are and when other ADs say where their team is, is anyone going to be motivated to play BYU in a game? It seems to me there's three options for BYU. I don't, it doesn't feel like this Saturday is an option. It's, it's not enough time. Uh, they may play, but it'd be weird if they did. I think the options are the fifth, where the obvious opponent is Cincinnati. Now, will Cincinnati be motivated to play when they see the rankings? They're in a different boat than BYU. Um, what they have in common is they're not Power 5, but the advantage Cincinnati has is one group of five is guaranteed that they are in. And how free and clear is Cincinnati of everybody else in the group of five? Do they need a win to separate themselves from somebody else, an undefeated Marshall or Coastal Carolina, or do they need a win to stay separated? I suspect Cincinnati's going to have a pretty, pretty good deal of separation. Uh, but they might be motivated to play. We'll have to see how that plays out. The other options for BYU are move the San Diego State game from the 12th to the 19th, because now it looks like the Aztecs aren't going to be playing on the 19th, and play on the 12th. Uh, it would be easier to just schedule somebody else on the 19th who isn't going to be in a conference title game. You know, on the 12th, somebody like Oklahoma or Iowa State is there now. Are they going to want to play in advance of a conference title game on the 19th? You know, I, I can guess the answer to that is probably not. But, you know, are they going to be motivated to try to get a second team in to the New Year's Six? And might they need to beat BYU to make that happen? I can't 100% close the door on it. It's definitely worth a phone call from Tom Homo. But no one's going to be answer, able to answer these questions until they see what the selection committee says tonight at 5 o'clock. All right, DJ and PK coming up next. PK and I on the Pac-12. Where they stand now, with uh, depending on who you are, one, two, or three games played, it's going to be real interesting to see where Oregon and uh, USC end up and what the committee does with these teams that have played three or four games when other teams have played seven or eight or nine games. You know What happens with a 2-1 and one Wisconsin? All of that can impact BYU. In the media poll, they've been in front of all of those teams. But will they be when the selection committee meets tonight? We're all guessing. I think they'll be in front of them, but I think they won't be very far in front of them, and that'll motivate BYU to add another game. Or two. We'll have to see. All right, DJ and PK coming up next. PK and I on the Pac-12. Scotty G on the Aggies are scheduled to play Thanksgiving night, and the basketball team's got a tournament in South Dakota. The opponents are constantly changing. We'll talk with Scotty G about that at 930. Stay with us.